Welcome to another episode of Real Talk LEO. I'm Matt and I'm joined with my co-host Chris. Today we're joined with a special guest all the way from Washington State, Sergeant Eric. Eric, I don't want to uh, steal your thunder. I'll let you introduce yourself. No, oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, my name is Eric Tung. I've been out in uh, Washington State for my whole law enforcement career and mostly where I grew up out here on the west side of the state. Currently a sergeant with hiring and recruiting and you can add on training sergeant because we did a good job with recruiting. So we can get into that later, though. So what we like to do is uh, kind of capitalize on networking and communication. That's kind of our thing uh, with Real Talk. Just a quick backstory as to how this relationship came to be with us and Eric. He started seeing some of our stuff on Instagram and reached out to us. And that's what we're looking for. We had a, you know a great conversation prior to this and so much r- relatable information between our agencies and we're over in in New Jersey Eric's all the way across the country in Washington and it's like we're like neighboring departments sharing a lot of the same issues and it it it's just that's kind of how this all started so we don't know too much about each other from the conversations we've had Eric you were saying that you've had a lot of success in the recruitment side of your agency is that right yeah so um we you know I appreciate you drawn for the listeners like the connectivity and the connectedness i guess in our shared issues um you know a couple of things happen in a couple of places in the country and then it rocks the whole country right and that's law enforcement that's every department every officer every officer's family um i mean i certainly lost um you know some friends with the career that chose another path and i'm guessing you gentlemen have seen that in your neck of the woods as well absolutely we're we're seeing it a lot yeah, so I mean, we were we were facing the this unprecedented hiring crisis and staffing crisis over the last couple of years uh, since the death of George Floyd and with COVID and all these other stressors exacerbating it. Fortunately for me and my department, there was a dedicated effort to to push in the effort of recruiting and hiring and putting dedicated resource out there. And I know it was very wasn't an easy decision to make you know everybody counts and everybody is pulling double duty in some regard or another whether it's extra hours on the street or extra caseload and all that but luckily my department went ahead and greenlit me to take over as a full-time supervisor of a couple background officers and a full-time recruiter and definitely a lot of lessons learned in the last six or seven months Uh, but we have been able to close a large gap of our vacancies nearly all of them at this present time. So, and that's been, I don't know if we've ever been there in my 15 and a half years here. I could speak for me when I, when I first got hired, we, we are um, a civil service jurisdiction. So in order for us to get hired, we have to take a state statewide test. We get on a list. And then when our number's called, we start the interview process. That's how it kind of begins for us. We, that's always been very competitive um, to the point where when I was 18 years old and I was still going to college, that's when I took the test for the first time, knowing that the process was going to take about two years or so for me to get into it. And that's where my timeline ended up. I was close to 21 years old when I got in. My point being, it was super competitive and we're not seeing that anymore. We're going from having an applicant pool of 300 interested candidates for our department to 80 and I'm sure you know 80 candidates for a position of 10 or eight officers is nothing. You blow through that in a heartbeat. There's so many disqualifying factors. I can honestly say, like, when I got hired, I appreciated this job so much, and I appreciated the fact that I was even getting an interview. 
And the way things are today, some of these candidates just look at it as a job. And I almost feel like the way the, the media and some politicians view our profession, it, it's a job for them too. you know, to look at it as a job. And I don't think the passion for the job is there any longer. I just feel like a lot of guys and gals could take it or leave it. And they're like, oh, I'll take the, the test and I'll, I'll try it. And if I get hired, I get hired. If I don't, I don't. For me, to the day I retired, I appreciated this job. And I love this job. With all this stuff going on and um, with the media and, and like you said, with the George Floyd and everything, I still had a passion for this job. And I feel like that's what's missing in this profession now. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a combination of a lot of things. And I can definitely uh, relate to the competitiveness, even just hearing from the generations prior to mine. Uh, I came in at, at a similar time, not to this extent, but where there was a, a narrower applicant pool. Uh, it was 2007, 2008 uh, before the economy dipped. So everyone was hiring like crazy. A lot of the traditional candidates from what I'd heard and what I'd seen in the news articles was that traditional candidates were deployed overseas. We still had a lot of troops overseas and the boomers were retiring in mass, right? So we had the, the biggest working generation all leaving the workforce all at the same time. And then it was already becoming a more unattractive uh, profession back then. That's where I liken it to today, where I remember going on ride-alongs or going to interviews. And I mean, most most departments I interacted with, there'd be someone that's sarcastically like, hey, man, you sure you don't want to be a firefighter? Because <laughs> I don't know if you pay attention. Cops, you know, people don't like cops. So that's there's definitely a similarity there. I actually use that story to remind a lot of the, the you know, the younger guys I have or guys on my crew say, hey, man, like, I don't know what it was like for you when you came on, but I certainly wasn't wasn't trying to get all these accolades and, you know, parades every other week um, for just simply existing. Like, you know, we we came into this for, with some scrutiny, um, but our why and our purpose had to be so much louder and significant than that. And I think maybe that's what you're talking about, Chris, is feeling this, maybe this lack of the level of commitment to this profession and more than just a job or a vocation, right? It's a calling and it's a career and certainly a lifestyle uh, for those that have been in it. They can attest to that. It it affects your whole life, your whole family. Yeah, 100%. And I think the problem with the calling is when you're, when you're ambitious and you're excited to do something, you want people to push you to do that. And I think what's happening are people have the drive and the desire to go into this profession, but they see the lack of support by I'm not even going to say the community, because in my opinion, the community has always, when I say community, I mean the negative part of the community has always had a dislike for the police. It's it's just the nature of the job. I mean, you're seeing people at their worst. You're, you're sending people to jail. You're not there to necessarily have a barbecue with people. You're there under extraordinary circumstances, and they're not always the best. The way some of these politicians and leaders are not supporting the police like they were back in the day. It's making people th rethink their their profession and their passion because it's like, well, you know, yeah, I really love doing this and I really want to be a cop and I really want to um, help people. But 
if I do something wrong, I'm going to go to jail for this, or I'm going to lose my job, or I'm going to lose my pension, or I'm going to lose my house. It's not very appealing anymore. It, it you know, it's sad. Yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, I think they've had surveys, anonymous surveys, and studies for years. And correct me, if, or uh, unless you've heard otherwise, but you know, most cops are more afraid of being sued or the the litigation than being shot at. Um, yeah. And I've I've had both. So I'll throw it out there, and yeah. they're a different kind of stress. I won't I won't belittle you know the the shooting, um, but it's yeah, it's certainly very stressful, and it carries and it weighs on you different ways. And and now in this this newer age of where getting criminally charged is a very real concern, um, definitely out here, and it's and I think it's you know most parts of the country, blue states, red states, yeah, it's everyone. So it's definitely something to be mindful of. I mean, think about it. what profession ha- has that fear hanging over your head, you know, not even a doctor has no. that type of a fear. It's just, it's scary. And I, I can't blame people for not wanting to do it. I really can't, but something's got to change. We got to, we got to make this profession noble again. Yeah. And I think the, it's so complicated. I've, I've thought about this so much before coming to this role and then since taking on this role and paying attention to what we're doing, what appears to be working, what appears not to be working and what all our neighbors and, you know, fellow recruiters, because, you know, there is some competition by nature because everyone has to look out for their own to some extent, but it is very much the same team. Right. So now that I've found some success, I've, that's a lot of why I'm on here. That's a lot of why I put out my own social media and I wrote an article on recruiting uh, submitted to police one where I just want to put out what worked, you know, while I have my thoughts fresh and organized. Um, but it is tough, right? You have you have many people in the industry that aren't doing the industry any favors. And yeah. and I don't mean like bad cops. I just mean tired, frustrated cops. And I don't blame them um, for, for a bit. But at a certain point, when you have those people that are super dejected, they're super negative, maybe even borderline toxic. And you're trying to bring around recruits. And I'm not saying my department, I'm saying every department. I know it's in every single department. Um, but these guys aren't doing themselves any favors. They're not doing their peers any favors that are trying to move forward in a positive direction. But it happened in you know the recruiting game for me when I was very newly assigned. There was a young man that came into our department. Um, he had linked up with me. We set up a time for a tour and just to talk about him and the career. And it turned out he'd actually grown up wanting to be a police officer and he was in a local neighboring city in their Explorer program. I don't know if you have that out there. Yeah. We, we have like a junior police Academy type thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he was already doing all the things that, you know, a teenager would do to kind of prep for that. He had it on his mind after school and then, you know, he's basically 21, 22 now. So his young adulthood was, experiencing the turmoil that's been the last couple of years. Um, and he's an African-American man. So he was pulled uh, away from his family and friends saying, Hey, you gotta, you gotta pick a lane and you can't be a black man and a cop. You got to mm-hmm. choose. And so that was very impactful for me to hear. Um, but he, uh, he actually went back to his advisor cause he's, he tried to go a different direction. He was doing well at work, getting promoted, but there was still this, this nagging, calling right this some this thing that he'd wanted for so long and this purpose that he'd been driving toward when he reached out to his advisor the advisor per, really candidly and probably just 
from the hip said, Hey man, like, don't, don't do it. Like you don't want to come into this. And so his follow-up was initially kind of shock and confusion, but then he came to me, right. He'd never met me before, but he just went to the next city over. And then he was, you know, a very promising applicant for us. So all to say, like, we, we have to make sure that we're, we're not stuck in this victim mentality um, as police officers. And yes, the times might be unideal. They might be really strenuous, but at a certain point we choose to be here. And if we don't really feel committed to that, then, then we need to really, really firm out our gut check. I can honestly say that everything that I've experienced within my career and that's physical stress, you know, mental stress, being involved in so many critical incidents, the impact that it's had on my family, has it crossed my mind that, you know, did I make the right decision becoming a police officer? Absolutely. I'd be, be lying if I said that that never came across my mind. But I will say that I could never see myself doing anything else. I literally have the power every single day to affect someone's life for the good or for the bad. And I, I hold that power in very high regard. And I have so much passion with it. And going back to a feeling, uh, we talked about it when you kind of first come in, uh, almost like a sense of entitlement. When I was going through the academy, I just had one image in my head, and that was to get to my first roll call, my first briefing in my uniform, and to be able to sit there amongst my soon-to-be fellow brothers and sisters wearing the patch that I earned, wearing the badge that I earned. And that's what got me through. And again, I don't see that as much nowadays. It's still there. I still see it with with some of our, our people that come in, uh, but I don't see it as much. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with our culture. We are so beat down as a police culture that it's hard for us to put a smile on. And it's hard to us to explain our passion. I think most of us still have it. It's just been so pushed down and suppressed that it's just not getting out. And that's affecting. You talk to me on the street, and I'll tell you, like, still to this day, all the stuff that I dealt with, I still think that people should become police officers and get that level of fulfillment. I mean, I can tell you being a police officer, like I said, close to 30 years and then having my son follow in my footsteps. I mean, he'll tell you how passionate I was about this job and I'm still passionate about it. If I wasn't passionate about it, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. And mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is I never once pushed him into this profession. I never said, you're going to follow my footsteps. You're going to be a cop. You're going to be whatever. I allowed him to make that decision. And I know inside my heart from being a police officer, I know what type of person my son is. And I know what he can bring to the table in this profession. And yes, as a parent, absolutely 100% proud that my son chose to be a police officer. Does it make me nervous? Yeah, absolutely. It makes me more nervous as a parent. And now that I'm not on the street, we're working in the same agency where I see him every day. You know, I have obvious concerns, but I mean, I got to tell you again, as a father and as a fellow police officer, I couldn't see my son doing anything else. And I see the fulfillment in his life. I see how much he loves what he does, uh, which makes me proud. And I can tell you, I see it in his eyes when, you know, him and I talk pretty much every day and, you know, he's passionate about, the jobs he's been on or, you know, a critical incident that that was a success and it's contagious. And if he can, if more officers can do that, I think we can get out of this hole.
you know, but like you said, there's, there's so many negative aspects about this profession now. And it's, we've all said this a million times that the most stress that you get is from the administration. And trust me, I know I was the administration. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was on both sides of the fence and I understand both sides of it. And now you put more stress from the outside world, social media, politics, you know, everything. And it does make it very, very hard. But when you have your own people, like you said, why do you want to get into this? Hey, kid, don't make car stops at two o'clock in the morning or just do the absolute minimum or don't do this. Or don't. It's not helping the cause. And bringing people in to this profession that are enthusiastic about it, that really want to do it, I really think they can get us out of this hole. I really do. It's it's just going to take some time. I you know it, like anything else in law enforcement, we go through cycles and we go through ups and downs. And I personally think we're on our way back up. I think we hit rock bottom, and I think we're on our way back up. So I think the profession is going to get exciting again. Yeah, I appreciate what you gentlemen shared because yes, admin, politics, social media, the media at large. I'm not at all saying that we couldn't have some help and some encouragement from from those large scale entities that definitely causes so much stress and scrutiny. Um, it, it would certainly help our whole situation, you know, our relationship and communities, um, the hiring thing, but also just effectively solving crime, right? And when closing cases, if people trust their local cops, if there's police legitimacy and that a strong bond. However, for me, it's we can't sit around and wait for that. Right. And that's what I hear from both of you is, you know, you had all these stressful situations, all these ups and downs, but by far the ups outweigh all the downs. And that's why you're both committed to this, this profession, Chris, even with you being retired. And for me, that's, what's really refreshing is talking to some recent retirees where, um, you know, they see how, how I'm trying to engage and I'm getting a lot of kudos from, you know, what, some people may have pegged the old guard and the reason why is because some of the other retired peers are they're kind of poo-pooing that police in general are functioning differently or they're communicating differently and they're pandering they're caving all this and that it's like i mean what the job always was as i perceived it was problem solving and taking care of people right so if you boil it down to those basic things the flavor and the style could change all the time right but if you're if you're effectively solving a problem, you can't just keep doing it the same way. Um, even if it's how we talk to people or how we engage on calls and how we do our training, how we, how we interface all these things. I don't think the mission's changed. I think that the circumstances have changed around the mission. And, you know, like you said, the old guard, there's just some people that aren't willing to change with it. And they're willing to throw their hands up and be like, you know, I'm not I'm not bothering with this anymore. But if you're committed to it and you're passionate about it, you're going to fight through those struggles and you're going to come out on top. You know, going back to the retirees and the old heads and everything. Yeah, I could sit here and be this crusty old guy saying, you know, son, don't don't get in this profession. You know, go be a, go be a fireman or something else. I'm not like I would strap a uniform on tomorrow and go back out in the street. You know, that's how much I love this profession. Even a lot of these guys that are older that aren't willing to change with the times, like you were saying, 
they tell these young kids don't even bother and they're still where we, I don't know what you call them in your area, but we call them RODs retired on duty. And mm-hmm. they're, they're basically just the guys that anything a, a guy, guy or girl does out on the street, they're doing too much. Just, just answer your calls. Don't do anything. What, you know, because if you do something, you're going to get in trouble and they're putting fear in these young cops minds. And, and I can't stand that. That drives me crazy. I hated it. When I was on the street, I hated hearing it. When I was a lieutenant, a quick war story. I was a lieutenant. I had a brand new sergeant, and I'm talking to my platoon, and it was a midnight shift. The sergeant comes in, and the first thing the sergeant says is, I don't want any car stops after 2 o'clock. I'm tired, and I don't feel like dealing with it. Well, I released the platoon. I told him to go out on the street, and I proceeded to have a conversation with my sergeant. I'm like... How do you expect to encourage these people to go out there and do their jobs if you're going to sit here and tell them not to do their jobs? Like now, this is coming from a guy who already had 22 years on the street. Okay. I could have very easily been like, yeah, whatever Sarge said, just be quiet. We don't want any trouble tonight. No, I want you to go out, find crime and, and arrest people or help people or whatever the case may be. And if you have that type of encouragement, you're going to, your chest is going to uh, blow up. You're going to pound your chest. You're gonna, yeah, I got the backing of my supervisor. He wants me to go out and do a good job. You're not getting that with some of these people anymore. And it's, it's sad. Yeah. There's such a focus on the negativity and, you know, there's new laws or new policies or the fear of litigation or case law. And it shifts so many people into this, oh man, we can't do this. We can't do that. We can't chase cars. We can't, we can't arrest for this or book for that. But I think what's been impactful for me, and I'm not going to take the, all the credit, but I've, I've been able to be along, among other leaders at my level and above that quickly uh, focused it into, okay, what can we do? Like, let's, mm-hmm. let's drop the can't. Let's talk about what can we do. So let's map it out. Let's talk about it in briefing or roll call. And let's go over the new laws. Let's go over the new guidelines from the prosecutor's office. And let's do some scenarios. Like everyone bring a bring a situation or a call that you had last week. And maybe there was a bit of a hiccup and some differing opinions on how we could best handle that, whether it was a mental health issue or a criminal issue. But let's actually roundtable this and talk through what what can we do? What, uh, what case law can we cite? And how do we interpret this with best practice? So we're all on the same page. And we can all focus on action rather than inaction. And that's been super helpful for me when you make it about something other than yourself and get in your own head. And I think that's where the mentorship piece is huge. And for those uh, that have been in for a little while, if you shift the attention towards those new guys, right, that are they're ready to go, but they don't have the experience or the wherewithal to do it confidently. And they're looking to seasoned officers that have been on for some time and that seasoned officer, I mean, it's definitely happening here where that seasoned officer is having fewer and fewer years on, and there's fewer and fewer of them. So mm-hmm. really, it underlines their significance and how how impactful they're going to be or need to be. Yeah, I think you hit, the, you hit the nail on the head with that. We have also seen a lot of success with that kind of style of leadership as far as debriefing jobs and to almost to the point where I've had guys from other units and other platoons you know, on the side come up to me and say, hey, we really want to debrief this job. They want to learn um, with the guys that are in there. And 
I think part of our problem is not knowing what we can and can't do, especially like our newer generations, because to your to your point, you have these senior officers who only have three to five years on and they're giving their experiences and they're giving their level of education, which just isn't there. I, case in point, we had a uh, an officer who was a an FTO uh, field training officer, and he had four years on. He was training a brand new officer, and he is just giving wrong information out to the to this new recruit, and it, it just was blowing my mind. So, it, it is our fault as you know leaders and more senior officers that we're not pushing this down, and we're not allowing these guys to grow. One of the things that uh, that we implemented in, in my unit, uh, one of my previous units was we gave each guy every month, once a month, we would give a, an officer uh, a piece of case law, it's just something small, maybe like a strip search or something to do with motor vehicle searches, something along those lines, pretty broad. Um, if they had a particular case or investigation that they had called a sergeant about and they weren't hundred percent certain with how, how it went or whatever, uh, that was one of their topics. And we found that the guys would put so we told them, I'm like, listen, I'll give you time while you're during your shift. I'll bring you in the headquarters. You can put together a little PowerPoint. You can do some research. And I found that the guys were spending four or five hours at home off duty researching it. And then they're coming in and they're getting in front of their peers and they're they're passionately speaking about it because they want to learn. They want they they have the experience that so they have the visualization of what occurred and now they want to clarify it and they want to tell others. So uh, it's definitely effective letting these guys express themselves and show what they've learned and teach others to empower them with their knowledge. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you really make it about the officer level and even the newest recruit or newest officer can have skin in the game because they need to become the expert on this and it helps them through learning. It helps them through teaching and now everyone's uh, everyone's elevated from that. So that's a great practice. And we definitely have that going on. We talk about the, the youth in departments going on. We see it here, us and all our neighboring agencies. But, yeah, your field training officers are like a couple years on. And, you know, SWAT, K-9, these really competitive things that you know, used to you need like five or ten years, uh, five on the short end to get in or be yeah, competitive. Yeah. Yep. Now it's like, you know, three or four years, maybe you get a waiver. Um, you can test before three years. Uh, detectives, it might be anywhere from three to five years, depending on the, the unit. And I mean, these are stellar can candidates that are going in with that little amount of time, but it's just a totally different game where we're looking at some patrol crews where the senior officer might only have a couple years on. And so it is a little bit of the blind leading the blind because it's not to say they're not sharp, but it's literally less time and just a fraction of the types of calls or incidents that you go through over numerous more years, right? Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, I, I don't care how book smart you are, you need to have the experience under your belt before you can, like, I know for me, I didn't feel comfortable in this job until I had about five years on. When I had five years on, I felt like I could go out to a job, I could handle the job, I didn't have to be calling my sergeant every five minutes being like, I got this, I got that, you know, what do I do? I made the decisions. I called the sergeant and said, this is what I got. This is what I'm doing. And more times than not, I was correct. And even though I was book smart, like I'm a case law guy. Like I love case law. I've always loved case law. 
And like what Matt was saying about giving guys, um, or you said it, uh, skin in the game. We have these officers that only have two, three, four years on. It's up to the supervisors to give them that opportunity to learn, to give them the case law and say, hey, this is what you had last night. Look up some case law and tell me what you should have done. Too many times, a lot of guys will read the first or second paragraph of a case law and they think, well, I can do that or I can't do that. And you were saying it earlier. Let's sit down and let's really look at it and see what we're missing. You're getting all upset because you can't do A and B. Well, maybe C and D is there. Like, oh, we never even realized that. Having these younger officers in the profession without the experience and not being given the opportunity to learn while they're doing it. Because, I mean, there's, let's face it, there's there's a lot of supervisors. There's a lot of agencies out there. It's like, just go out and answer your calls. If you got a question, call me. And that we're not teaching them anything and they're not learning anything and they're not becoming passionate about their profession because they have no purpose. They're just like a machine. So to give them the opportunity to grow and learn, I think is so important. And like you said, you got a guy who's got three years on or four years on being a field training officer. Like, really? Like, that's that's young for a field training officer. Yeah. And it might just be where we're at. I mean, we yeah. we're encountering that where they're yeah, they're sharp. They're squared away. But because everyone is so young, yeah. you got to you got to work with what you got. And so exactly. I've been chewing on this a lot. And how do you get around that? Because everyone's talking about it. Um, you're going to have you know, young officers, you're going to have a ton of them. You're going to have young field training officers. You're going to have young sergeants and young commanders and, and on and on. Right. So it might be overly simple, but I think that the best hack is just really leaning into mentorship, right? Maybe yeah, even yeah. Yeah. to take a spin off of Jocko's like extreme ownership is like extreme mentorship. Like if everyone, every link of the chain is very invested and hands-on with their protege or with their, their subordinate, then then it's not that, hey, call me if you need me, right? Like, and that can be mistaken for, um, you know, just being an, an easygoing leader and he really trusts me and lets me do my thing. It's like, yeah, but what do you risk by that, by not being involved, by not being engaged? Absolutely. And I think you risk a lot, right? Bridging that communication, making it a regular thing, touch base, you know, really see it through and maybe even take on that field training mentality to every every rank right and hopefully agencies are doing that so it's not just winging it and shooting from the hip so eric one question i, I had for you uh it's kind of like a i don't want to say a running joke but everything that happens out on the west coast finds its way over to new jersey um oh, we're, man. A couple, we're a couple years behind you guys but anything that happens out in california oregon washington sooner or later it finds its way right out to new york and new jersey so one of the questions that I had is what are you guys doing as far as recruitment um, and going out into the community and trying to get new applicants? Now, I do want to say that I, I was stalking your department website and I found yeah. a recruitment video, which was awesome. pretty awesome. <laughs> I got to tell yeah, you, whoever you guys use for that uh, production company did a, a fantastic job and all your cops were, were, were stellar. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, so a couple things. First, I thought you were going a different direction. Like all the stuff starts on the West Coast, like BS policies or case law or something like that. Well, that uh, too, but I'm. I'm... I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, first off with the video, um, that was actually our city multimedia uh, stellar um, talent, Alex, but he actually left uh, the state. And so maybe, maybe he'll freelance. I'll connect you guys after the, after the podcast. Yeah, um, please do. But yeah, that was actually a pre COVID uh, video in the works. And that's how much work went into it from the team. Um, so when I was, the irony is, you know, that's part of our website and people testing and they go to the test site, which is out here, a largely a private company that does almost all the city testing or uh, municipal and county testing for police and fire. But they play that video in the background as people are coming in and they're looking at that and they can add on uh, to test with us and we cover the fee, that kind of thing that a lot of departments do out here just for uh, get exactly that recruiting. But this video is playing in the background and then I meet these candidates and they're like, oh, I saw you in the video. But the ironic part is I had nothing to do with recruiting when that was filmed. Uh, it was pre-COVID. And um, one of my buddy was clowning on me because when it finally came out, he's like, man, what happened to you? You look great in that video. But <laughs> and I was it's like, it's COVID, bro. Yeah. Yeah, it's, COVID. it's hitting us all so, real hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, it was cool. And, the, you know, the Chief had the vision for that. And just to have this really, mm-hmm. um, really polished but also uh engaged video and they did a lot of video series with that which is really cool but definitely a good recruiting tool um the main thing that that i came into to be honest was just recognizing the stigmas and the impressions and you had you know regional impressions of like what wasn't going to work and you had even national uh narratives to what doesn't work for recruiting and hiring and how it's all digital and you you know traditional job fairs don't work this and that doesn't work but really when i came in with my guy brian i was like hey we cannot afford to to take any of that um just as doctrine we just need to throw everything against the wall like whatever we got if you got an idea i'm i'm good with let's roll let's just do it um and so that's not that's not a me thing. That's a team thing. And definitely having the support of my commander and really pushing us to be creative. And that's where we were able to build our our social media presence a little bit. Um, Instagram, you know, that's where a lot, we were reaching a lot of people. But we were also getting on Indeed and LinkedIn and just trying to just, you know, hold shot people with very mixed results. Um, but really, I think the biggest takeaway was just to try things and get out there. And so any event we had in the city or in the region, if it was job related, if it wasn't job related, if it was just, you know, a cultural event or if it was just a, a fun time, like we had the, you know, the state fair going on in the springtime, like a smaller version of it. So we just got out there and we just put cops out there and it definitely helped to have a budget um, or I guess a, a loose budget because administration was like, hey, just get, get, just get guys out there because we need to try everything. Um, and really paying people to overtime is, is like chump change compared to paying some of these companies that are coming out of the woodwork. And I don't know if you've experienced that or, uh, that angle as far as, uh, if you have any involvement with your, your department's uh, recruiting, but there's a lot of departments or sorry, a lot of businesses that come out in this hiring crisis and pitching their services. But, you know, I really, my own personal take was that it wasn't going to get people to sign on to be a cop or find these great candidates by 
a radio ad or digital marketing, but really just being able to talk to someone. And so to summarize a lot of it, my approach was to make community outreach exactly the same mission as recruiting and vice versa. So we actually tagged that together and I asked my boss, I was like, Hey, can I put community outreach on my cards? Cause that's literally what I want to do. He's like, yeah, go for it, man. Like you never have enough of that. So, and so we would, we would just go everywhere. We'd go to schools, we'd go to events and softly. We we're just like, Hey, we don't need to get a lead to succeed because we're having conversations. We're bridging the gap. We're letting people ask whatever questions they always want to ask a cop or just interface. Right. Um, mm. But even in hindsight, if you had one solid lead, uh, one good prospect, like the event was well worth it. You know, the couple hours you're there, you're just on your feet or talking to people it was well, well worth it in hindsight. I've had personal success with conversation piece. When I go to certain events, um, like a, our local high, high schools or, or whatever, and you have that one-on-one interaction, that's where we always get the, the results, I would say. Um, and we're able to get them into the process. And again, it's a little bit prolonged for us because you have to go through the state civil service and you have to do a test and everything like that. But we have to get people to sign up for that. And going to these events is what gets us to do that. And when we first started this conversation, I was saying that we had you know 800 candidates or people signing up for that. We've gotten to the point now where we've made recruiting teams um, part of like auxiliary units and they're going to high schools they're going to colleges and they're going to job fairs and going out there and, you know, explaining the profession. Um, some are do a great job. Some of them had that passion behind it and that's what's drawing them in, but the recruitment video and going out there and talking the one-on-one, I think it appeals more to our generation. I'm, I'm in my mid thirties and obviously I'm, I'm becoming older and older in the profession. Yeah, so I don't dinosaurs now. I'm, yeah. I'm 37. So we're, uh, we're ancient. <laughs> Man, so I don't have the same, you know, appeal to the younger generation as I once did when I, when I first got into it, but th- th- they grew up watching screens. And I think that the social media Avenue of it and the, the video Avenue of it is really, it, it's something it, to get them, you know, drawn in. For sure. Yeah. And so that was like our leaning in towards Instagram. Um, you know, we would love to do, TikTok and things like that. But, you know, with, with privacy and uh, public disclosure in the city, just being mindful of that, um, you know, it wasn't like we could just get on every platform, but for agencies that their city policies or administrations are open to that, I mean, that's certainly an idea, right? I mean, why not get on um, uh, platforms like that and then to get on a podcast, right? And so however people are absorbing media now, you know, I think that it was very impactful to be able to meet and greet with people for sure, like to meet the human. But then we'd always divert them back to uh, our Instagram, our future cops or, you know, or vice versa. You know, we'd post on, hey, we're going to be at this event. And sometimes we actually would have, you know, some followers that were looking to test because that's why, you know, they learned about us. And they start following and then they see on our story. Hey, you're going to be down, you know, at the at the shopping plaza. I'll, I'm there like that's my that's my time to go or, you know, kind of BS with a recruiter for 20, 30 minutes and then just giving everyone the time of day. So, um, you know, you touched on it, but as far as recruiters, some really selling the message and the impact of the job, but then others not doing as great a job, who you have in that position is critical. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, I really appreciate my team. Again, you know, my recruiter is like extrovert to the max and he, he's a good storyteller and he's got his heart on his sleeve and, you know, we're both peer support, but he's just very much like, no, no, there's no hiding his emotions and he can really connect with people. 
and draw in a room. Um, whereas, you know, for me, it's something that I've practiced and, you know, I've gotten better, but it's I'm, my, my natural leaning is for sure, you know, an introvert, but mm. just to have the people that are committed and comfortable. And that's where I think I was successful in that. Although my, my leaning is not to just talk in front of a ton of people, I'm very comfortable talking about the real stuff and talking about the trauma. And then also what you can do in this role, right? Like we're both, we're both peer support and Chris was in resiliency. So I mean, that's critical, like to the longevity and your, your healthy life, your healthy career. I think people really do appreciate that. It's not just the storybook or the, the bright, you know, cool video, but afterwards and you're like, Hey, like this is some real stuff and it's some heavy stuff that you're going to see. It's really impactful. You can literally be in the right position to save someone's life. And the times you're not, it's really hard on you. But um, if you're surrounded by the right people, the right culture, the right practices, and a lot of that you can, you can affect on your own, then it, it, it can be something that you can navigate really healthfully. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. That's kind of like where we went with this whole podcast thing. We wanted to do like a stripped down version, no frills of what it is like to be a police officer from the day you get hired to the day you retire. And that was our whole focus. And it's just having candid conversations. Like, I, I don't know if you had the opportunity to listen to all our stuff, but we do a segment with my daughter and my daughter's husband's also a police officer. And she just recently got married a year ago and they just had a baby and he's been on a job five, five or six years. And, you know, he's getting out of that honeymoon stage. So he's going through a lot of emotional stuff in, in the, in the profession, but we talk about that. And like you said, you're going to have your ups and downs. You're going to have your times where you have the opportunity to save somebody's life, but you're also going to have the unfortunate opportunity of not saving somebody's life. So to be able to lay it all out to people, it's, it's, it's nice if you could sit there and say, you know, Hey, join the police department. It's the greatest thing in the world. You're not going to have any stress. You're going to have bells and whistles and new police cars and uniforms and all that stuff. It's just not true, but you're going to have that to an extent because in my opinion, the reward by far outweighs the negativity of the profession. And Again, with with what we wanted to do is we just wanted to show everybody, okay, this is what you're going to go through in the hiring process. This is what you're going to go through in the academy. This is what's going to happen when you start working midnights and get moody and all. And then this is what's going to happen when something great happens where you save the life and how that makes you feel. And that's the part that always kept me going. You know, I could have had 10 bad days, but if I save somebody's life or Listen, we've all done it a hundred times. If I went into the store and bought somebody a soda or a cup of coffee or a hamburger, or somebody was down and out or whatever, that made me feel good. Not because I wanted to get on social media and say, hey, look what officer so-and-so did for this person. You know, I did it because it made me feel good and I, I was helping somebody. And I think that to me is the draw that most people that want to be police officers, that's what they're looking for. Is, am I making sense? I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, absolutely. And I, <laughs> the, the phrase that pops up to me is humanizing the badge. And I, and I yeah. feel like I see some circles where that gets a bad rap and there's probably haters that 
the fact that we're even talking about any of this and spending time like who the heck cares right and there's there's videos that are absolutely abhorrent abhorrent and i'm like oh stop it right now right that's not helping um but then there's videos that are really funny and they're you know they really show someone's uh their personality their humor you're like okay cool like that's what people need is they need to see that cops are people and the majority of cops like the wide vast majority of cops are people that really give it give a crap about other people that's why they're doing it um i think that's biggest testament to that and how maybe how you work how you were a cop how you carried yourself as a cop and uh navigate your career chris is that your son following your footsteps i think there's no greater compliment than your kids wanting to be just like you um that you did something right there right but then you have people like me that you know i a little later in my adolescence i suppose in college is when i really started thinking about public service and really not knowing where to start and how to go about it you know i didn't grow up around any of it and so i had to figure out a lot trial by fire but if we do a good job as an industry of creating those opportunities through you know these events and just being out in the community and even where a lot of the generation is on their screens where they can connect with officers and they can see us as people and they can even send us a message and ask for advice. I mean, that's a lot of why I think all three of us even doing this is to be approachable, to be transparent, and then help people have the tools to succeed in considering themselves as a, as a police officer or first responder and going from there. I appreciate the, the kind words about Matt, but even like for me, I was a first generation uh, officer. I didn't have anybody, but I had friends that were police officers and they took me under their wing. And just like you, like you said, you might not have anybody right now to mentor from a, a family standpoint, but the people that you are mentoring, the, the future police officers, they're going to remember that for the rest of their life. And they're going to remember you. And they're going to remember another officer that took care of them and took them under the wing and, and told them, you, you could do this job. You can be great at it and they will be great at it. And with people like you and us and a whole host of other guys and gals out there that are positive about this profession, we're the ones that are going to make this rise up again. Yeah. I think that's key though, is, you know, you're bridging that you're, you're putting the lines out there, you're opening up so people can find you, they can reach you, you're accessible, whether it's as a, a department representative as a recruiter or just to be an outward facing officer when you're out on the street are you actually making eye contact and smiling or do you have rbf and you're you know you're mean mugging without even meaning to yeah. and that's yeah, something exactly. that i had to yeah i had to check myself on that you know years ago just because i just found that's what my my face would do especially when i'm out and you know on patrol i'm you know you're looking around you're trying to be vigilant and and then your face can do certain things that you may or may not be intending to um, but yeah, even recruiters, like I've, I've noticed at career fairs where, you know, me and my counterpart were, you know, they give you a table and they give you chairs, but it, you'd have to order us back behind our table and we'd go out and mingle and just try to, you know, tap people on the shoulder and, and just go to them. And that's kind of the energy we try to bring. And that's the energy that you're going to need to do, right? Gone are the days where a department can just sit back and say, well, come to us. We'll we'll receive your application and we'll go from there. We'll send you some oral board dates and and then we'll meet you there and prove yourself. Um, so we found that going out rather than, you know, some recruiters, we'd see literally sit in their chair the whole time and 
it was very much this come to me um, persona, but we've even, we just really wanted to give everyone the tools and remove the mystique. So part of our hiring process or our recruiting strategy was to engage them with skills and develop them as candidates. So we would host twice monthly sessions, candidate workshops, where for sure we have a lot of opportunity to tell a couple quick stories and explain our why and really tell them about our culture and our department. But more than that, a lot of it was actually, you know, PowerPoint class on how do you put your best, how do you put your best foot forward? How do you present well? Let's talk about interviewing the type of questions that you may see at our department or other departments and what we're looking for in an oral board, what makes someone successfully pass the background, which is, you know, telling them 20 some ways how not to lie. And yes, omission is a lie. And yes, um, minimizing is a lie. Just tell it as it is and we'll sift through it. But Mm -hmm. um, some people don't like that. They think that, again, that's pandering to the new generation, the soft generation, or, you know, you're going to get worse candidates. But what I've truly found, what I believed and I've confirmed is that by doing these sessions, your, your strong candidates only show up better and your weak candidates aren't going to pass the background process anyway. Um, You can give them the rule book, but they're not going to, they're not going to figure it out or they're not going to take the time or the commitment or, or you just by, by proxy of the background process and polygraph and all that stuff, they're just going to utterly fail anyway. I'll tell you something that we did, or I should say I did when I was in charge of training. Um, I was in charge of the FTO program as well. And I was a field training officer forever. I mean, again, I think I had four or five years on when I, when I got it and I kind of took over the program and then getting it in the training unit, obviously it just went with the job. But one of the things that we did was after the guy or girl got hired and passed all the exams and everything, we immediately assigned a field training officer to them. What that field training officer did was that was their point of contact throughout their entire experience in the academy. They weren't training them and they weren't really doing anything with them other than being like peer support. So, you know, you you take a, a young kid who just graduated from college, they never really had a a real job. They never really got yelled at or told what to do or anything. So they're coming into a new environment that they don't understand. And they're getting shout down. They're getting, they got to do push-ups, pull-ups, reports, all this stuff. You know, you got to be back in at 6 a.m. You you know, you're not getting out until 7 p.m. And they're just, the stress is just overwhelming. So we assigned an FTO to them and his responsibility or her responsibility was if they're feeling down or they need some help, they could call you and just talk to you. You know, if, if they're saying they want to quit, you're not reporting that to us. You're just being like a friend to them and helping them through the process. And I got to tell you, it, it was pretty successful. I mean, we've lost people in the past um, in the Academy. I don't know what the percentage is, but when we started implementing that, and the recruit knew that they had somebody in the department they, they could talk to without ridicule or anything like that. It, it seemed pretty successful. And even after they got out of the academy, they already had somewhat of a relationship with their field training officer. So they felt a little more comfortable going out on the street because you know how uncomfortable it is when you graduate from the police academy, you go out on the street 
and now your your field training officer is telling you what to do. It is so awkward and so uncomfortable because you know you're not even going to be able to spell your name right on a report. You're so nervous. So that kind of broke the ice a little bit too. So they already knew them, and uh, it it seemed to be pretty successful for us. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that because uh, we have a version of that where before they go to academy, they are introduced to training staff. So a training sergeant, which will be me soon, and then a training officer. Um, but then, yeah, my, I'd like to bring back, we had a formalized mentorship program, but then that's one of my goals is to bring that back. So as to, to spread a little bit of the contact and let new recruits meet officers, because I think, again, it's like, we need to recognize that these, when we're short staffed, when we're understaffed and we're, uh, we're running around like, you know, our, our tails are on fire, there are, and so to pass judgment or to size them up, kind of like the old school culture that we came into, like we need to be past that. Um, yep. We can't be proud of how many people were axing again, like, hey, come to us to apply and hey, prove yourself through our field, uh, maybe a field evaluation program rather than field training program. Um, and it's, it's like all of a sudden, once they're solo status and they're off probation now, now they're in this you know, the special brotherhood, it's almost like hazing, right? So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, like if we go through all the work, all the scrutiny and the steps to find these very um, rare, very uh, coveted, fantastic, yeah. uh, you know, candidates that are of high integrity, high quality, and now we're going to wash them, you know, just because they're, you know, they're not riding fast enough or, you know, yeah. picking up on frisk factors. Like, no, like, let's train them, right? Like, in, for sure, if, if someone's not cutting it um, after, after a period of time, I get it, right? Like, this job isn't for everyone. And, you know, our testing process, at least for us, it's not like mock scenes and, and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's not going to be for everyone. But I do think that for the majority of the time, like, just about everything is trainable. Um, outside of character, which is what we're hopefully doing a good job evaluating in the hiring process. Yeah, I mean, if you're a good field training officer, you're going to pick up on that. You're going to know who's cut out for this job and who's not. And if you are truly a real instructor or teacher, you're going to take the time with these people and you're going to make them succeed. But like you said, there's just some people out there that it's just not for them. You'll you'll know when that time comes. The the concept of uh improving the candidate or having like a candidate coaching class or whatever that I've, I've never thought of that. That, that sounds like a really interesting concept to, you know, you have this pool of people. Um, and I, I, I'm right now, my wheels are turning as how we can implement it, you know, with the guidelines that we have with civil service and all that stuff. But I absolutely love that concept. Not only am I bringing you up to speed of what to expect from the law enforcement side. I'm also bringing you up to speed as far as what is expected of you as a you know man or a woman and the type of character or person that I want. And we in law enforcement are so heavy on training and everything to, to not even think about that before we put them through the process to develop these candidates a little bit more before we invest so much time and energy into them just to go through the process to be washed out. It's so... The, the, the dots are all connecting in my mind right now. And it's, uh, it, I find it to be very beneficial. Oh yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think it's, it is still um, maybe not widely accepted because some people 
it's a lot of the, hey, I didn't have any help and I got here. And it's like, well, that's fantastic, right? But we need more like you. And if we can school someone up and give them the answer key um, or not the answer key so much as the study guide, mm-hmm. um, you know, for me, like I said, when I was testing, I did everything wrong. You know, I failed, utterly failed my first oral board with a small town that I grew up in. Um, and then through trial and error is when I figured out, oh, okay, I, I answer the question like this. My scores seem to get a little better. I guess I'll try more of that. And then finally, I was testing for a small town that I actually had no interest to work at, um, but I had already sent my scores there and paid for it and then had an oral board coming up. And luckily, I was mature enough to recognize, hey, you don't have a job, man. Let's, let's go figure <laughs> out this interview thing. But because I went in with such low pressure and I wasn't sweating it, I was myself. I was a lot more candid. I was speaking way more conversationally and naturally. And I even made fun of myself a little bit and the board loved it. Like they were just, you could see they relaxed and they were just looking at a person, um, a person that, you know, hopefully they liked, right. That they, they said, yeah, I I'd like to work with this guy or this kid um, yeah. where I, yeah, I aced it. So it was, it was a huge lesson for me. Okay. More of that, less of what I was trying to be was, you know, really stoic and rigid. And again, not knowing any police officers, just assuming, you know, yeah, what I deserve from a distance. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So completely wrong. Um, terrible interviewer at the, at the, at the first stage. So, um, but if we can just tell people, Hey, we want you to be yourselves. We want to hear about the things that make you, you and think about your, your big significant life events that may be applicable in any kind of question. Like we won't give you the questions, but think about that and think about who you are. Think about what you bring to the table. Think about beyond. I want to help people. It's like, cool. There's, you know, teachers help people, nurses help people. They're fantastic, right? Private sector people help people. But what do you, why police? Why do you want this job? There has to be something specific. And, and that's where people can really uh, understand what we're looking for. And then again, I think we all know someone that would be a fantastic cop and maybe they've been trying for a while, but they just can't crack that first process. But you know their character, you know why they want it, but they can't interview well. Well, why not tell them? a couple skills so that they can interview well and they can get the job. Um, so that's really where we were at with just trying to create that opportunity. And again, it's, it's this trying to have a more growth mindset and abundance mindset, because, you know, I came into this role thinking exactly everything I heard, which is that there's no one that wants to be a cop and the ones that do there's, there's not nearly enough of them and Mm -hmm. we'll see, right. That might, there's definitely room for improvement. Um, But what I found is that if you're out there and you realize that, hey, if I put on this class or I take a little extra time, you know, I'm going to find some good people and they might get hired here or they might get hired at the city next door. But either way, that's a win win for the community. You know, we obviously mutual aid all the time. So we're all the same team. But then also it's just the community at large doesn't just stop at our city borders. So um, just trying to pay it forward and just and just get out there. Um, and really it just goes back to my, my theme that I think was so successful is just trying it and just, and just engaging. It's an awesome way of looking at it. And that right there is a testament to the character of most police officers. As long as I'm in it to help the team and to, to improve my community or the state that I live, that's all I ever wanted to do. It just wraps it all up. Yeah. And I think that with that, it's, 
you've you've kept this really strong compass of your purpose, right? We talked about critical incidents, we talked about the stress, but, but sure, and I appreciate the the sharing that you thought about what if not this job and should I should I stay, should I go? I had the same thoughts and that's a lot of why I created, you know, my my blue grit wellness like Instagram and just as an outlet. I just wanted to be positive and I wanted to put out positive wellness stuff to other cops and non-cops and you know after George Floyd a lot of the people that knew me from school were like hey man you're still a cop right and I'm like yeah and a couple times I got the hey I wish there were more cops like you because you're just a you're just a nice dude and that Mm -hmm. fell into this and that it was such a bittersweet moment but mostly frustrating Mm -hmm. um, because my immediate reaction was like I'm not I'm just one of so many like you just don't know um Mm -hmm. And just because I, you know, I didn't grow up knowing any cops and clearly these people didn't grow up knowing any either. So I'm their only link in to this huge profession is like, man, if you only knew, like, I'm, I'm sure I appreciate the nice guy comment, but there are some people that put their heart and soul and way more hours. They take on way more stress than I do at times. Um, they just really care. And that's what, that's what keeps our society functioning um, to some degree for sure. So um, just wanting to get out there and, and be a little bit more transparent and open. That's a lot of why, you know, I started a lot of these projects and, and even putting my name in the hat for hiring. Um, you know, I, I had just gone to a small unit, which is more community focused and, you know, kind of these cro- these chronic problems after almost my whole career, 14 years in patrol on the street. Um, so I finally got into my like small unit, this thing that I'd been really going for the majority of my career. Um, and then hiring comes up where I was definitely not ready for a desk. Um, that was my, that was my concern. But as I saw it, there was really no, no way that I could impact our department and our culture and just bridging and finding the, the actual help through more officers uh, than this role. So, um, so it's been really meaningful, but I, I think that the biggest appreciation I have, and for those that, have worked alongside me or helped directly with recruiting is that you can easily find reminders of your why, even if you lose sight of it for a little bit, right? So to talk to a bright-eyed young man or woman that wants to put themselves out there and wants to serve um, in this very righteous path is very inspiring. And if it's not, then you really need to do another gut check, right? Um, And if it's not motivating for you to turn it up a little bit for yourself and and find that find that momentum for yourself to show them the way or to help them in some regard, then then maybe you really have lost that spark um, in your commitment to to this because it's it's not something that you should be able to just clock in clock out right. Um, it's something where to be a solid police officer, you really need to be invested. And so, for me, although I have had those those ups and downs, I, you know, I think making it about other people as I have more years in this um, has definitely kept my fire uh, burning, you know, being a patrol sergeant and then making it about your guys and peer support, making it about your team. And now, you know, mentoring the, the soon to be, or maybe hopeful police officers, like for sure, that's been very, very uh, reinvigorating for me. We are super appreciative that you reached out to us and that we were able to have this conversation and connect with us it definitely reignites a fire for us and it refreshes us that there's guys like you all over this country 
and you share the same passion that we share, that is how I know that this profession is going to be fine. And not only is it going to be fine, it's going to be better than it ever was because of guys and girls like like you. Um, so we truly do appreciate it. And we appreciate all the beneficial information that you've sent our way. And I'm going to be applying some of it for sure. The old uh, saying, West Coast comes to East Coast. And this was uh, this was no exception. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. I, that's a very strong compliment. And I, I appreciate being able to meet you gentlemen and connect on these things. Like, you know, we're all in the we're all in the same boat. Um, although it is, you know, it's a very, uh, large boat spanning the, mm. spanning the whole nation, but yeah, we're all in, facing the same issues, same challenges. And so I think by, by connecting, we can definitely find the same opportunities. And so, no, it's been my pleasure for sure. And be definitely down to have another conversation in the future. Absolutely. Um, thanks so much, Matt and Chris. Absolutely. Thank you.